Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is Steve Silberman, author of the liner notes in the new 50th anniversary edition of David Crosby's If I Could Only Remember My Name. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. I'm Rich Mahan, as always, joined by our good friend, John Hughes. John, how are you today? I'm great, Rich. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. It's a lovely fall day here, and we have some great music announcements to share with our listeners. I mean, this is a twofer for me, what we're going to talk about today. Two of my favorite artists of all time, starting with my favorite artist of all time, David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. November 26th sees the release of David Bowie 5 Brilliant Adventure 1992 to 2001. As the title implies, it's the fifth in a series of box sets chronicling his career from 1969 to the 21st century. Then on January 7th, 2022, the day before David's birthday, Toy Box will receive its long-awaited official release, finally making the legendary previously unreleased album available in 3CD or 6x10-inch vinyl versions. Now, wow. to- yeah, Toy is a studio album, the, the great lost David Bowie album. It was recorded after David's Glastonbury uh, 2000 performance, where everybody just lost their minds because it was such a great live performance. And he felt this adrenaline from that, that he grabbed the live band and went to the studio to record new interpretations of songs he'd first recorded from 64 to 71. He wanted to record the album old school with the band playing live, choose the best takes, and then release it as soon as possible. Unfortunately, in 2001, the concept of a surprise drop album release was still quite a few years off, although he finally got to do it with Blackstar, which was amazing. It kind of made it impossible to release Toy back then. So in the interim, David did what he did best. He moved on to something new, and that began with a handful of new songs from the same sessions, which ultimately became the awesome album, Heathen, which was released in 2002. Now, the Brilliant Adventure box set includes Black Tie White Noise, The Buddha of Suburbia, Outside, or One Dot Outside, if you prefer, and Earthling, along with Ours. It also has the BBC Radio Theatre London, June 27th, 2000, which was expanded to a 20-track version, and, of course, Toy. There's also a bonus disc called Recall 5, which 
gathers up all the non-album singles, edits, single versions, B-sides, soundtrack music. This is all remastered. It's all in one box called Brilliant Adventure, and it's out November 26. Yeah, anybody who has any of the previous Bowie box sets knows how fantastic this is going to be. They're amazing collections of music from one of the most creative musical minds maybe that's ever lived. You're not going to get an argument with me. I'm going to say whoever lived, period. This is the guy. Yeah. Now, this is kind of an unheralded era for Bowie, but there are some real great albums in here, uh, in particular, uh, Buddha of Suburbia and Ours, which really kind of goes back to the hunky-dory kind of style of, of Bowie. And I think Earthling really gets a short shrift. I think Earthling is an amazing album, and it's time to revisit that. And I'm so glad it's coming out. Yeah, that one's going to be great. And some of the songs from Toy are actually already out now, so you can check them out on streaming services. And meanwhile, another great musical act that is just part of my DNA, Depeche Mode. They have announced the upcoming release of a high-def version of Depeche Mode 101, the documentary film and live concert. You know it. You love it. Now it's in high-def. New previously unreleased performance footage is included. This is on December 3rd. They're going to release this newly upgraded, expanded, definitive box set edition of the 101 documentary concert film and live album, chronicling the 101st and final performance of the band's Music for the Masses world tour, recorded live at the Pasadena Rose Bowl on June 8th, 1988. I was not there. Um, (laughs) Additional contents in the new limited edition 101 box set include a 48-page behind-the-scenes stories of the day photo book, a 20 by 30 inch replica of the original U.S. theatrical movie poster, a 16 page Anton Corbin photo mode book is featured in the original album release, plus a double CD of the original 20 track release and a download card providing access to 4K downloads of the film and bonus performances, plus 24 bit audio files. Wow. Uh, The two DVDs in the set contain the original extras from the 2003 DVD release of 101, which are exclusive to the DVD discs. This is available on December 3rd as a limited edition five-disc box set with additional bonus content. Or if you like, you prefer, you just get the standalone Blu-ray. So Depeche Mode 101 is coming your way. Yeah, sounds like they didn't leave anything out of that deluxe package. So Depeche Mode fans are really going to have something to look forward to there. This is something that has been requested and demanded by fans for so long. So it's great to see it coming to fruition. Love it when that happens. Nice fan piece. Thanks very much, John. Thanks. We'll catch you next time. All right. Well, author Steve Silberman wrote the liner notes for the new 50th anniversary edition of David Crosby's If I Could Only Remember My Name. Steve also hosts David's podcast... Freak Flag Flying, and he's had many conversations with David about his first solo album, which had an incredible cast of San Francisco Bay Area players, including Graham Nash, Jerry Garcia, Neil Young, Yorma Kaukinen, Laura Allen, Greg Raleigh, Phil Lesh, Jack Cassidy, Bill Kreutzman, Michael Shreve, Mickey Hart, Joni Mitchell, David Freiberg, Paul Kantner, and Grace Slick. And if that list right there doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what will. The new 50th anniversary edition of If I Could Only Remember My Name adds a second disc of previously unreleased tracks, including some late 60s demos David cut down in Los Angeles prior to recording this album. I thought I'd seen someone 
gentlemen please welcome steve silberman of the rhino podcast steve thank you thank you rich i am so honored to be here to talk about my favorite album on earth (laughs) the album that changed my life and you know it was my favorite album on earth when i was in high school and you would think you might think that after you know 40 year 50 years almost of uh listening to miles davis charles mingus uh, you know, fish, you know, that uh, that I would think, well, you know, that album. No, it's one of the greatest albums ever made. It's yeah. unbelievable. But it's it kind of has it album. has all that stuff in it. It's such a great amalgamation of everything that he had ingested to that point. I think he's uh, you know, I was talking to some a, a bunch of other people this morning before this conversation. And I told him I was going to be talking to you about this record. Everybody across the board said, what a great record. Yes. And. Oh boy, was that ever not the widespread opinion when it came out in 1971. Robert Criscow of Village Voice called it disgraceful and gave it a D minus. Some guy in England said something like, there's nothing on this record that isn't really nice. And was there ever a more damning indictment? <laughs> Whatever that means, you know. <laughs> yeah, I right. mean, Crosby was under sort of rock critic pressure in part because both Stephen Stills and Neil Young had come out with masterpiece albums of their own just before it. So Neil had come out with After the Gold Rush, which, yeah. you know, everyone's still listening to. Sure. Stephen came out with the first solo album, yeah. which is not as popular now, but is actually just, you know, unbelievably beautiful record. Yes. And so now they're like, oh, it's the third one. You know, so they thought they had to turn against it. And also, and importantly, Crosby's album was much more experimental and adventurous than those other two albums. Well, there's like, no doubt you know, about that. Yeah. 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 I mean, there were instrumentals with vocals. Even even Crosby's agent, David Geffen, told him that those, you know, songs like Tamil Pius High at about three and Song With No Words, you know, Geffen said, like, why don't you write words? You know, that we can't do that. And it wasn't until Ahmet Erdogan the legendary head of Atlantic said, calm down, David, we've already shipped a million. That David, <laughs> Geffen, that David Geffen let up on him. But, and also, you know, as I go into in, in the notes and great in the liner notes that I wrote for the album in great depth, which by the way, I'm really sorry that all you folks who are downloading Crosby's album, don't get my liner notes too. Um, Cause they are, it's a great read, Steve. Great job on that, by the way. Well, well thank you. Yeah. You know, even though the album was dismissed as a kind of, you know, hippie, self-indulgent, blah, blah, blah. David was actually going through the hardest time of his life to that point, which is that his girlfriend and really the first true love of his life, a very beautiful and intelligent and sparkling and creative young woman named Christine Gail Hinton died in a car accident, taking her cat to the vet while CSNY was recording Deja Vu. So you can imagine, you know, the Deja Vu is like this 
there was so much pressure, you know, the sophomore album pressure, you know, and plus CSNY had had its huge debut at Woodstock. So just two days before David recorded that sort of legendarily rough and intense vocal on Almost Cut My Hair, Christine was killed in a car accident. He recorded that two days after the accident? Two or three days. Oh, that's like... You know, that's going to forever change the way I listen to that song now. I know. Well, if you listen to the edge in David's voice, that's part of where it was coming from. You know, it's not just a song about cutting his hair, you know. Right. He was he was really anguished. And so that happened while Deja Vu was being recorded at Wally Hyder's studio, the same place where not just If I Could Only Remember My Name, but Volunteers, American Beauty... Paul Cantor and Grace Slick Sunfighter and uh, Baron Von Tolbooth and the Chrome Nun. Like that place was a factory of the music that when I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, the albums that came out of Wally Hyder's were like transmissions from a better universe, practically. You know, there I am in my, you know, my room in New Jersey. And, you know, I'd buy these albums and they seemed to come from a sort of visionary society that contained both folk music and science fiction stuff, like the album Blows Against the Empire. Right. And which, which all those people were also involved in making. Yeah. And so me as a young science fiction fan and burgeoning acid head, you know, it was like just what I wanted. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some combination of hip, hippie hope about the future of the world and also like science fiction where we'd be, you know, fighting the fascists in space or something. <laughs> so, so you know, basically that album, if I could only remember my name, this is something I think I've never said in public, which is funny. You know, a lot of people know that I'm associated with the dead and then I was, you know, saw 300 shows and worked on the So Many Roads box set and all that. What most people don't know is I pretty much got into the dead because of their playing on If I Could Only Remember My Name. Wow. How about that? On songs like What Are Their Names, which was a spontaneous jam that just happened in the studio yeah. that the brilliant engineer Stephen Barncard captured because he kept the tape running all the time. Yeah. And then David happened to have a set of lyrics that fit it. But it was like that. It was like Jerry's guitar was so like intentional and focused and it wasn't just jamming. Like, you know, people say, oh, the dead were jamming. Yeah, they were. But Jerry always made sure he was like the headlight on the northbound train. Yeah. And Jerry always made sure that it wasn't just riffing and wasn't just blues changes or whatever. It was always going somewhere like a musical narrative. And I picked up on that quality really from his playing on uh, David's album. My co-partner in the Deadcast, Jesse Jarno, and I spoke with David, and he said that he had a special connection with Jerry, where they would get together and just start 
playing, sometimes they would have to stop and just laugh because of the things that would happen between them. They were, a, you know, a catalyst for each other to create. How did they meet? And I'm just curious to know about when they actually met each other, because it was obviously before this. Perhaps was it at Monterey? Do you know about that? Well, here's the thing. I kind of do know. One thing I want to point out is that what you just said about them, you know, like playing musical games together and smoking big honking joints and trying to blow each other's mind. You can actually hear that exact moment after the sort of unfocused intro of a track called Kids and Dogs, which appears on the new re-released, if I can only remember my name. I actually personally rescued that performance from the vault. It's kind of a long story about how I became (laughs) aware of it, but in any case, you can hear them playing these chords and then you can hear Jerry chuckle. So, you know, my feeling about when they met, I actually asked David uh, when he met Jerry and he couldn't really remember, but he was hanging out certainly with the dead when they were living in 710 Ashbury. He was, he was practically living at 2400 Fulton street where Paul Cantner and Grace Slick lived. They were all hanging out together. David had lived with both Paul and Grace and David Freiberg from Quicksilver, mm-hmm. who later appeared on Baron von Tolbooth. Yeah. You know, David Freiberg is sort of his own for, you know, he was in Starship and all Sure. This. But in any case, that group of people had what is really the template for the hippie commune, but years earlier in Venice Beach. So they kept a bowl on the piano with money. If any of them got money, they put it in the bowl. And it was all communally owned you know they were having shall we say sexual experiments across gender barriers um in that house (laughs) they were it was a very progressive little house you you can imagine what happened to a household like that when lsd came along (laughs) but in any case so david knew kind of new friends of jerry's and stuff One of the things that I learned while writing the liner notes for If I Could Only Remember My Name that even David did not know is that in 1965, I think, Phil Lesh went to see the birds in North Beach because he was a fan. And Phil uh, said, well, I was kind of pissed that they didn't play Mr. Tambourine Man, but I danced my ass off anyway. (laughs) And So, you know, Phil was already a birds fan. And then Phil met David at Monterey Pop, as you mentioned, through Phil's then girlfriend. She was then called Florence Nathan. She's now Rosie McGee, like one of the best Grateful Dead photographers, who's coming out with a new book soon of her photographs. Oh, wonderful. So so they were all kind of hanging around each other already. You know, David was kind of intricately involved with the Dead's roadies. In fact, one of the Dead's roadies, a guy named Slade, was the guy who drove David to the hospital to identify Christine's body. They actually drove past the smoking wreck of her car 
um, to get to the hospital. Justin Kreutzman was a little kid in the car with David. Nobody knew that until the liner notes were, if I can only remember my name. And wow. uh, Justin's mom was there too. I mean, so it was a time for David of, you know, great joy, great affirmation. He had tons of money, which is why they could rent Wally Hyders like for months, literally, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we have to book five more hours of studio time. They just practically live there. You know, right. you know, people would wander into each other's sessions like, you know, Paul would walk by Studio C while David was recording a song, walk in while Paul was making another album in, in Studio A, you know. So it was a very relaxed and safe environment for David to recover from the loss of Christine. Yeah, right. Let's back up in the timeline a little bit before that. There is a, a second disc on this new 50th anniversary edition of, if I could only remember my name, that has unreleased, previously unreleased tracks. And some of those are from sessions in Hollywood with the producer Paul Rothschild. How did those sessions come about and how did he work with Paul? Yeah, well, what it is, is that David got fired from the birds. I believe the Paul Rothschild Hollywood sessions were March of 68, I'm pretty sure. And by the way, there's there's a lot more of that Paul Rothschild uh, session of demos. I actually was rooting for a different demo of Guinevere from the Paul Rothschild Ooh, sessions. Wow, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, oh, it's lovely. But David and the producers of this project preferred the... Preferred the um, the one that was, I, I forget the other guy's name. It's in the notes. But Michael Nemo was the other guy. But so what David was trying to do was he was trying to get another band going and a, another career going because he'd just been thrown out of one of the most successful rock acts in America. Right. And he, he fully admits that he was an asshole and that was why he was thrown out of the birds. And also the birds were assholes to him. And they sort of famously... You know, the, the album that came out right after David was forced out has like three of the birds and then a horse uh, where <laughs> David's face would have been. You know? and, and the thing is, you know, it's like one of the ways that David got out of his contract with the birds was by saying that he was washed up. He told Clive Davis, actually, that he was washed up. You know, please release me from my contract. He was anything but washed up. He was writing the best songs of his career, practically, or yeah. certainly his early career. Absolutely. Yeah, many of which appear on If I Could Only Remember My Name. So David was trying to get something going. The bird's money was running out. He was, meanwhile, by the way, had walked into a coffee house in Coconut Grove in Florida, and he hears the sound, and it's like, what is that? And then he sees, like, the most beautiful woman he's ever seen in his entire life on stage, and it was Joni Mitchell. <laughs> and, and and Joni Mitchell was a not just undiscovered. I I discovered that it was even worse than that. She had already circulated a demo tape to the executives of the big record companies in New York, and what they would what they would say was, "I'm sorry, that that kind of thing is not selling, right? You know, folk is yeah, it's last yeah, year, right, but." could I please keep a demo tape for my wife? <laughs> so <laughs> they knew it was good, but right. they just didn't think it would sell. So David told 
not just Joni, but Elliot Roberts, who became her manager, to move out to L.A. and to try their luck there. And David got Joni the contract, got Joni, or, you know, her music got the contract, but David facilitated that. Uh, David then uh, made sure that Joni had tremendous creative control over that project so they wouldn't tart it up with like uh, stupid string arrangements. David also arranged for uh, Stephen Stills to come in on bass on Night in the City on Joni's first album. And if you listen to a song called The Dawn Treader on Joni's first album, it's about David. And it's one of the most beautiful songs she ever wrote. Wow. So that was the song she wrote like, Hello, new boyfriend. You know, it yeah, didn't right. last long. You know? Right, right, but right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. What? So what would you say if you're just kind of listening to the songs that Paul Rothschild produced in Hollywood and then the ones that were done at Wally Hyders, what would you say the main, obviously we don't have Jerry and, and the, the uh, Pero crew playing on them, but right. how do they really differ to you? What's the thing that stands out in your mind the most? Well, they highlight David's, use of open tuning, open tunings. And David, in part influenced by Joni, but he also influenced her. David has a very unusual melodic sense. Alas, I'm not a musician, so I can't really talk about it articulately. But David's chords are more like jazz chords. And he literally got them from trying to emulate people like McCoy Tyner mm-hmm. playing with John Coltrane. Right. When David was a young folk singer in Chicago, he went to see John Coltrane at a club and he's told this story several times, but well, he was trip. David was tripping. And at some point Coltrane's playing became too intense. It was like, Oh my God, I got to chill, you know? Yeah. So he went into the bathroom Coltrane walked into the bathroom behind him and he was still playing. You know? so, so it was like this, you know, completely, yeah. you know, his skull exploded. Right. You know, he right. went from chilling to going to a small room that amplified it acoustically because it was probably tile and it just right, went even exactly. deeper into his cerebral cortex. Just like, exactly. take that. Exactly. So David told me that in addition to being influenced by folk singers like Odetta and the Weavers. But in addition to being influenced by them, he was also influenced by jazz players like McCoy and Bill Evans, uh, another brilliant pianist. I haven't actually heard David say that he was influenced by any jazz guitar players. Yeah, I find that interesting Uh, too, that you're you're calling out pianists. But I think it's the way that they would shape and modify chords. And I can see how that would appeal to somebody who's into open tunings because... Yep. That affords you a way to build chords on a guitar that you can't get out of a standard tuning. Yeah, exactly. And that's why David really embraced the open tunings, he told me, was that they enabled him to emulate those complex, you know, very, like the thing about David's chords are they do not express simply one mood or emotion. They express very richly shaded emotions. It's hard to tell if, you know, some of his melodies like Tam High are happy or sad. Right. Because they're both, you know. Yeah. And everybody thinks that Tam High is just a reference to Tamil Pius High School, where at 3 p.m. every afternoon, David and... um Oh, who was that other guy from Quicksilver? Um, 
anyway, who wrote Get Together, actually. Any, uh, I forget his name. But um, they would go there and check out the girls, you know, who are coming out of the, you know. But the other thing it was that people d- don't generally know about is that after Christine died, David would go to Mount Tamalpais, which has, you know, very beautiful overview of the Bay Area. Yeah. And cry his eyes out wow uh, and and mourn christine so songs like tamil pious high are fairly nuanced you know like it's not just one emotion dogs i would say is almost purely a happy song it's just lovely like it doesn't really have that shading of melancholy but then one of the most radical songs on if i could only remember my name which david thinks is the best tune he ever recorded is called i swear there was somebody here Mm. it was a completely spontaneous vocal improvisation based on bach choral music that David did in the echo chamber at Wally Hyder's with Stephen Barncard recording in 13 minutes. Wow. There's like nine versions of David, or as he calls it, Mormon Tabernacle Me. <laughs> and he's just improvising. And it turns out to be this, you know, uncannily beautiful and deep elegy for Christine. You had mentioned before, of course, he joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash. The Birds money was running out, and he had started recording down in L.A. And when he got to the point where he was at Wally Hyder's recording this album, did he already have a deal in place at Atlantic for the record? Were they waiting for it, or were they just going oh, yeah, and that, recording? No, okay. Remember, Deja Vu had just been a huge success. Yes. You know, Deja Vu did not get negative reviews. It got very positive reviews. Yeah. Think about it. David had only two songs. Am I wrong? I think he had Deja Vu and Almost Cut My Hair, and that was it. Yeah. So he was sitting on Guinevere, Tamil Pius High. Well, no, Guinevere had come out. He was sitting on Tamil Pius High, laughing, like, all these great songs. And because of the way CSNY, you know, sort of farmed out the intellectual property on each album, he only got two songs. So he had all these fantastic songs. Sure. And, And he did have a contract for sure. And David Geffen was his agent. And so everything was in place, including a group of musicians who were willing to work for, like, you know, bags of weed. Uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul Kantner's famous ice bag weed was the was the stuff. You know, it was like the first sensimia, you know, if anybody yeah. remembers that word. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> so David had basically a whole crew of people who were eager to play, who had a comfortable place to play. Wally Hyder had a very good vibe. Uh, 
Wally himself was this legendary engineer who had put that studio there because the Blackhawk Club, which was the center of the San Francisco jazz universe, Miles Davis was among many people who recorded great albums there. Wally himself had recorded jazz instrumentalists there. And so it was right sort of catty corner that where Wally put his studio. And for, you know, reasons of like, you know, vibes. Yeah. So Wally Hyders, and, you know, I'll tell you, like one of the most amazing cosmic coincidences that happened around the the um, Osiris podcast that I did with David, a, a whole series called Freak Flag Flying. We were supposed to, I was supposed to interview David remotely at like KQED or some other television studio, but they were closed for COVID. So Tom Marshall at Osiris, the fish lyricist, told me he would find another studio for me. The next day I get email and it contains a photograph of David, Neil, and Phil Lesh recording Cowboy Movie from If I Could Only Remember My Name. And it's email from Hyde Street Studios, which was the old Wally Hyders. Yeah. And so they said, this is where you're going to be recording your conversation with David. So wow. I called up David and I said, I called up to pure coincidence, or shall we say synchronicity. Right, sure. You know, I called up David and was like, David, you have to come up. Let's do this in person. Let, you know, let, and I was scared, you know, because of COVID. That night when we had dinner, I had dinner with David and uh, some friends of his. That was the first dinner that my husband and I had had with anyone else in like a year and a half. <laughs> that was a big day. Yeah. And talking in that room, all I can say is like all the music that really rearranged the inside of my head, you know, helped turn me into a deadhead, helped turn me into, you know, somebody into this weird, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now they call it freak folk or whatever, you know, sure. psychedelic influence folk came out of like the two rooms that I visited at Hyde Street that day. Wow. Like, <laughs> what was the vibe like in there? I mean, were you, I know obviously the room meant a lot to you, but it must have been incredible. Well, here's the deal. Wally Hyders is, or Hyde Street Studios, it is not the most appealing uh, street on earth. Um, <laughs> David thought he recognized some of the homeless guys sleeping outside. You know, it's it's the tenderloin. People are poor. There's lots of, you know, junkies around, lots of crime. But, you know, you see this kind of unassuming door. Then when you walk in, it feels like a very safe place. Yeah. It feels like, a, you know, a womb for creativity, sure. if you will. Yeah. And I'll tell you a hilarious thing. Um, Wally knew that the musicians who would be recording there, some of them had, shall we say, illicit tastes in substances. So Wally installed by the at the front desk where, like, you know, if the cops came, the person at the front desk would press a button that said panic button, or now it says release the Kraken, and everybody <laughs> would start flushing their dope down the toilet upstairs, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it was a very protected place, and it was a comfortable place to hang out. Like, if you look at uh, old pictures of Wally Hyder, some of which are in the album art for if I could only remember my name, you know, there's like tie-dye speakers and, you know, the yeah. dead set it up so that it was cozy. <laughs> Most people don't know this, but David 
has had considerable problems with his hands from repetitive stress uh, injury and other problems. And so just a couple days before my interview with David, he was telling me, oh man, you know, I may never be able to tour again. I may, may never be able to perform in public again. So we walked into Wally Hyder's. David immediately sat down at the piano and played Delta, the wow. great uh, CSN song. And then he picked up a guitar and played Guinevere. And I was thinking, you know, with my overwrought, over-the-top fanboy mind, I was thinking, oh my God, maybe I'm seeing the last public performance of David Crosby. And it's in Wally Hyder's, yeah, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> but, but actually, like a few days later, he was playing with his band for Justin Kreutzmann's uh, benefit for the roadies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, David is looking. And in fact, David, you know, David, who everybody used to say was the laziest member of CSNY because he didn't seem to compose that much. Last week, David recorded a new album with the Lighthouse Band, which is Michael League of Snarky Puppy, yeah. Becca Stevens, an amazing singer-songwriter, Michelle Willis, an amazing singer-songwriter. And so while David was celebrating the 50th anniversary of his masterpiece, he was making a new album, and it was like the sixth, I think, album of his in the last seven years. Like, he's been, his creative output, has, he's yeah. surpassing everyone from that camp. Everyone, yeah. everyone. It seems like what David's doing, though, is like on this level that you don't expect somebody his age who's done it for as long to stay that inspired and to create music of that depth. Exactly. Exactly. And what's helping him get to that depth is that in CSNY, and this is a little bit talking out of school, but in CSNY, after a while, you know, the and CSN even. You know, after a while, the tours, you know, were pretty much motivated by financial, you know, they at some point they didn't even really like each other anymore. Anyway, one way that they expressed that they didn't really like each other anymore was that, you know, Stephen would not be interested in rehearsing David's new songs. Well, what could be more of a buzzkill? Yeah, you know, totally. so finally, David found this group of young musicians, which includes, by the way, his son, James Raymond, who came into his life in the late 80s when David was having serious health problems, and then launched a new band called CPR, Crosby, Jeff Pivar, James Raymond. And CPR was like this huge, like, kick in the pants in the best way. David started writing tons of new music. The CPR albums kind of went under the radar, but they were re-released with liner notes by me a few months ago. They're great. And you can really hear the beginnings of David's late career renaissance in the CPR albums. Going back to everybody that played on this. Well, let's talk about, since we were just talking about the studio and the vibe of it all, having a vibe in his studio is one thing and it's a great place to start, but capturing that vibe and getting it onto tape is a completely different endeavor. Stephen Barncard was the engineer. What, and I've heard this from a few different people that he had an innovative miking technique, but they loved the way that he got guitars to sound on tape. Yes, beautiful. And it was Stephen Barnard with his assistant, Ellen Burke, who would apparently, by the way, meditate uh, during some of the sessions or in between sessions. So, you know, kind of purifying the vibe or whatever. Stephen was the perfect engineer 
for David's playing and everybody's playing at that moment, because David was, has an almost, it's almost hard to put it into words, but when you hear it, it's unmistakable. David has an almost mystical ability to tune guitars very precisely. And Joel Bernstein, who is Neil Young's archivist for a long time, Joni Mitchell's archivist and photographer of Hegira, you know, anyway, Joel Bernstein told me that David had an uncanny ability to tune guitars so precisely that the sound, instead of being like a butter knife, would be like a samurai sword. And David explained that a lot of that had to do with tuning by ear, not using digital tuners, that he was into David being a science fiction fan and a science fan in general. A lot of people don't know that about him. David is into the physics of music in a sense. And so on the, on um, one of the last two episodes of Freak Flag Flying, David explains what strings sound like as they approach being in tune and how you can tell they're getting there and then what happens when you finally lock in. Yeah, and I think that there's something that's kind of, you know, people bemoan a lot of modern technology and music because it kind of takes out the the personal aspects of a musician from the music sometimes. Auto-tune, for instance. Right. To a smaller degree, I believe that guitar tuners have done that to music as well. Yeah. Because when you have somebody like you're talking about David tuning a guitar, part of the way that he thinks and hears music is going into that tuning. So it is going to yeah. sound uniquely his own. Yes, exactly. And David, something else that most people don't know you know, David has this kind of goofy image in public. Um, you know, people say he's, you know, an asshole when he says something, you know, nasty about one of his former bandmates or whatever. Uh, but one of the things that he's really into, if you know him, is that he's really into sublime levels of craftsmanship. So he literally collects Japanese swords, you know, made in the old ways. And wow. he collects... You know, I saw his guitar vault. Oh, my God. If I was yeah, a guitarist, I probably would have passed out. Please. You know? Yeah. And so he's very sensitive to well-wrought things, basically. And that carries into his chords and his tunings and his playing. You know, there's they're very well-crafted chords. And yes. so you can hear it on the album. Yeah. A love of detail certainly is yep. uh, art's friend. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well put. I think, you know, all these other musicians that played on this, it's not, certainly there's a great ton of great musicians in the history of rock music, but it was a very unique group of heads that were there playing on this record. And they were just trying to expand the music as much as possible. And I think that Jerry reached heights of his performance on the pedal steel that he said were the best he ever did. And it was on, Absolutely. This, it's on this album. Jerry playing Absolutely. Pedal Steel on Laughing, he's been quoted as saying that's his favorite performance. Yep. And he, not only that, Jerry said, that had some sense of where I hoped to go with the steel, quote unquote. Wow. That's a direct quote. Wow, yeah. The sad thing is he actually didn't go that much farther. I know. <laughs> like he he, he basically gave up the instrument.
that is probably the most beautiful song that David ever recorded. Guinevere is a close second in my mind. And then the third, I have about 20 of them. But Laughing is just unbelievable. It has, you know, Jerry, it has Phil. I asked Phil about which bass he was using on If I Could Only Remember My Name. And he, he couldn't exactly remember which instrument, but he described the sound of the bass he was using as sounding like rose-colored wood. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's a beautiful description yeah. of the sound that he gets. Yeah. And that was really, you know, you know, Phil moved on, you know, to other kinds of tone and other instruments and whatnot. But Phil's bass on Laughing, as captured by Stephen Barncard and Ellen Burke, oh, my God. It's yeah. unbelievable, yeah. you know, with Jerry soaring over it. And then you think, oh, this is as beautiful as it can possibly get. Listen to that soaring pedal steel. Oh, yeah. And then at the end of the song, Joni Mitchell, you know, it's unbelievable. Stephen Barncard told me that she made, I think, two harmonies on that vocal crest at the end of Laughing. And I play one of them isolated on Freak Flag Flying. It's, you know, oh, my God, you know, you have to weep it so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned Phil's bass tone. Stephen Barncard also engineered American Beauty, the Dead's second 1970 album. And Stephen said that his audition to get the gig as engineer was, Phil's really looking for a good bass tone. So he came up with this way to get a great Phil tone. And you know, that was his go-to when they came to these sessions and Phil was playing. He said, oh, Phil likes that tone. I'm going to use that tone. Oh, I did not know that. That's fascinating, actually. You know, basically, so you had these incredibly, you know, sort of copacetic musicians, all who had cool relationships with each other. Like, obviously, you know, Yorma is on the record. And in fact, I think uh, it's it's either Tam, maybe it's Song With No Words, but it's like the one of the only songs with both Jerry and Yorma on it. think that those guys were around each other enough i wish they'd done an album together oh you know i know jack cassidy was also on this record beautifully so there are two examples of jack playing with crosby one of which i think was very successful and one of which i think was not so successful even though i worship jack i mean jack's playing on sunrise which is the first track of blows against the empire Mm -hmm. it's apparently a symphonic overdub of multiple jacks playing these chords. It's one of the most beautiful sounds on earth. So Jack, when Crosby was trying to start a new band after the birds, he recorded a demo of Guinevere with Jack and a guy named Cyrus Fariar on Bazooki, I believe. And it's great. It's gorgeous. It's not quite as perfect as the eventual master take on the first Crosby, Stills, Nash album, but it's just lovely. And it's more psychedelic in a way than the take uh, with just David on the CSN album. 
It's fantastic. And you you can find it. It was released. Uh, I think it was put out on Voyage, uh, David's box set, which came out a few years ago. Well, another huge guitar entity also is on this, and that's, of course, Neil Young. It seems like he kind of pops in and then he's out. Well, it's even more so than you think, Um, because one of the exciting bonus tracks on the 50th anniversary, if I can only remember my name, is a take of Cowboy Movie with Neil. And so it has both Neil and Jerry. And so what everyone thinks is, oh, my God, you know, why didn't they use Neil's, you know, track on the original master? They didn't because Neil forgot to bring his guitar to the studio that day and had to run back to the hotel where he was staying with his bush babies, these little mammals, and get the guitar. But by the time he came back, the track had been recorded. So what that bonus track with Neil and Jerry really is, I hate to dispel any illusions here, but what that really is, is it's the master take, but with Neil's track from another take that wasn't as good laid into the master take. So it's not actually a second take of Cowboy Movie. It's the same take, but with Neil's track. Wow. How about that? I would love to find out how they pulled that off back in the day with, you know, with analog reel to reel, because you would have to think the tempo would be off a little bit. They must have. They didn't No, They didn't do that until Voyage, actually. So it was it was in the digital era. Then there yeah. you go. OK. Yeah. Another interesting track and a very beautiful one, bonus track on If I Could Only Remember My Name is Where Will I Be? David makes a reference in a Rolling Stone interview that was recorded probably in 1970. He says that he's written a bunch of songs about Christine, but they're all bummers. So he's not going to release them, right? right. Well, I, I suspect that Where Will I Be was one of those songs and it is a very sad song. It's, it's a song from someone who feels completely lost. And the demo is just gorgeous. And then that song didn't come out until the first Graham Nash, David Crosby duet album a couple years later. In the demo on If I Could Only Remember My Name, you can hear David's anguish and the crystalline beauty of his guitar. obviously, Steve, work with David on a variety of things. The podcast, of course, which you've already mentioned. I'm just wondering, how does he view this record? You know, it's 50 years since it's been out. It obviously was during a very painful part of his life. 
when he looks back at it, what does he remember and what does he think and feel about it? I'm going to give you such a brutally honest answer that it will blow your mind. I don't think he thinks about it much. I think he is always, always, always focused on the future. He is much more excited about having recorded a new album last week than he is about commenting on an album he released 50 years ago. And so it's up to us, the fans, to appreciate that, you know, not just this album, but the new version of this album with all these extra tracks. I did. I do talk to him a lot about how he feels about the album uh, on the podcast I did with him. But in general, it's like if I call him, he's much more interested in telling me about the tracks that he laid down with Michael Lee, Becca Stevens and Michelle Willis last week than he is about rehashing Jack's Jack Cassidy's role. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. He doesn't care. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was I think I think he enjoyed being back at Hyder's. And what was so great was there are two uh, just wonderful engineers there named Jack Kurtzman and William Chasen. So we walk in and there's already like pictures of David on the wall. Like that's like the legendary old school time on the wall. And here we are walking in, you know? So I think, I think David enjoyed that aspect of it, but he thinks much more about the music that he's making for the future than the music he made 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Rich. I'm very honored to be here. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening to this beautiful music. Thanks again to Steve Silberman for his insight into the creation of David Crosby's solo masterpiece. If I Could Only Remember My Name is available as a two-CD set, a two-LP set, and digitally. Take care out there, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.